greetings and grace to you wherever you are on this campus. Great to see you and great to sing and worship and thank you for leading us so well, music team. I want to begin today by kind of asking a question. When you decided to enter into a career or if you were a stay-at-home mom or if you have a particular hobby, did you want to give yourself to that in the most excellent way that you could? You did, right? Why is that? Well, we just have this inbuilt desire, whatever we give our hand to, we want to do it well. If we pick up a sport, we want to do that. If we want to learn how to be a photographer, we want to study how to do that well. We give ourselves to things and we want to do them very, very well. For the Christian, we ultimately want to do those things so that we might be considered faithful and a good testimony. When it comes to the Lord, we certainly want to be serving Him well. A key way to sum that up really would be we want to be useful to God. We want to be effective for God. That's the cry of every believer's heart. Sin gets in the way of that. Sin clouds that. Satisfaction from the wrong place causes that to be a little difficult at times when we're failing to appropriate all that we are as a believer. Why do I say all of that? Well, as we arrive to Psalm 5, as you'll know, we're continuing with somewhat of a newly found sequential approach to the Psalms. As we arrive at Psalm 5, we see David desirous to be someone who is used by God. David, in Psalm 5, is going to exemplify us to us what it looks like to be someone who's useful to God. We only have one life. It'll soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. I made mention last week that you and I become too comfortable sometimes in the world. We treasure things in the world. We need to realign ourselves today and and say, how is it that I can be most useful to God? Or better put, how can I be the kind of person that God uses? David here in Psalm 5 will give us what we need in order to be someone that God uses. Psalm 3 and 4 and 5 form a thread. They're connected to David's own experience with Absalom. You remember Absalom's his own son. His own son had usurped his throne by deception. His own son was now a threat to his own life. And his own son had now turned the hearts of tens of thousands of men of Israel against David. And so David was fleeing. He writes all three of those psalms, Psalm 3, 4, and 5, while he's on the run, while he's in trouble, while there's turbulent 
times around him. What we know from 2 Samuel is that the trouble that David experiences from Absalom is on the heels of his sin with Bathsheba. He obviously committed adultery and then killed Uriah. By 2 Samuel 15 and 16, the trouble had arrived and Absalom and all that surrounds that was beginning to occur. And the lesson we can draw from that is that sin always brings trouble. It always brings trouble. But also, for the child of God, the believer, it's in those moments when trouble arrives as a result of our own sin, for the believer, we can confess our sin, having tasted of the sourness of our sin, and then return. Return to what? Return to the loving kindness of God. The mercies are new every morning. And often journeying through those times where we have sinned against our God, tasted of its sourness, experienced its consequences, we then move full of eagerness to move from that sin into a more God-saturated and even more God-focused life. Have you experienced that? Has that been your experience? When you've sinned, it's grieved you because the Holy Spirit dwells within you certainly been mine. We drop our guard. We suffer the consequences of our sin and then not wanting to dishonor the Lord who's worthy of our obedience. By His grace, we then rise up as a direct result of God's tender mercies that reach us by morning, that reach us every morning. And we commit ourselves to greater resolve and greater satisfaction saturation in God and the things of God. You can kind of put it like this. It's been well said that we are convicted of our sin. We're contrite over our sin. We confess our sin and then we consecrate ourselves to God. To move past that sin and then into deeper communion with God. And so all that to say, we simply must not sin. We know that when we do sin, we have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must not sin. And yet in God's providence, He often takes those moments and He works in us a greater resolve. I know I've needed that. I stumble and trip and sin. And I know you've needed that. You stumble and trip and sin. And so what we're going to see in Psalm 5 is David modeling for us what it looks like to be walking through trouble, either as a direct result of sin or a direct result of faithfulness, because both sin and faithfulness can bring about trouble in our lives. And it's in the midst of that trouble that God, with His wise and loving and all-sovereign hand, as I said, moves us toward greater views of His grandeur 
greater views of His holiness. And that moves us to want to live greater holiness in our own lives. We want to be useful. In many ways, Psalm 5 is truly a psalm that shows us that while we are indeed called to be people of lament, where we suffer in this world, we're certainly called to be people of holiness. People of holiness. That's the kind of people that God draws to Himself. That's what He endows upon His children. A life of lament and a life of obedience. We've seen in these Psalms so far, haven't we? In Psalm 5, we know different that while we live a life of lament, a life of trouble, a life of complete confidence in God is also our reality. And how we have that complete confidence in God while we go through despairing times is by being caught up in the majestic holiness of our God. And when our lives are caught up in how holy God is, our lives will be marked by obedience to all that God calls us to and what He places in our path here on earth. In Psalm 5, we need to understand that David is circled by significant difficulty. He is surrounded by trouble. But what David does here in the Psalm is he reveals to us the characteristics and marks of the kind of person that God pours out his blessing upon, his favor Why does he do that? Why does he pour out favor and blessing upon that kind of person? It's in order that that person would live a God-centered and God-focused life. The 12 verses of Psalm 5 break down into five portions. Each builds upon the other. And I trust builds us up in our faith and walk and equips us to be the kind of people that God uses. Again, you're a stay-at-home mum, stay-at-home dad. You, you want to be a good parent. You become a builder. You want to be a good builder. You don't just want to be a half-hearted builder. So on and so forth. Well, how much greater when we're called to be a child of God do we want to be faithful children? And so let's read far, Psalm 5 together and ask the Lord to bless our time as we hear from Him in His Word. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 5. We'll begin reading there for the choir director, for flute accompaniment. Amy, where are you? <laughs> A Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help my King and my God. For I pray, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Yahweh, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. 
You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a shield. This is a beautiful, beautiful song. Let's pray. Father, we, we're here to worship you. There's no higher, more lofty way than to hear your voice in your word. We thank you that we are the children of God. Father, thank you that your spirit indwells us permanently and that your spirit leads us into all truth. And so we pray that this would be a profitable time. Speak, O Lord, and all God's people say. A really important aspect of this psalm like the psalms that we've considered so far this summer, is that this psalm is a prayer. It's a prayer. I like how James Montgomery Boyce summed up Psalm 5. He said, quote, It is a prayer showing us how we must approach God if we would be heard by Him and what we can expect of Him when we do. End quote. That's a great way of thinking as we approach this psalm and dig into it a little. The first part of this psalm we see, and if you're taking notes, I want to give you the first heading. is number one, a cry for help in verses one through three. A cry for help. There are a few components to these first opening verses that are worth highlighting. First, David has a real sense of urgency about him. Urgency. His situation causes him to be desperate that God would hear. It's fair to say, isn't it, that burdens and troubles move us to urgency in our prayers. Dear Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. What about if there was no food? And then food arrived. Father, thank you. Thank you for this food. David says in verse 1, give ear. And he says, consider. And then in verse 2, he says, heed. Give ear, consider, 
heed. There are three urgent imperatives, three urgent calls. What is it about our prayers that sometimes they're just marked by formula and just structure and tradition? What is it about that? Well, the first thing we see here as we approach God is that it must not be simply given to routine. There ought to be earnestness, that is, seriousness to our coming to God in prayer. The Hebrew word for give ear, ha'azna, <laughs> means to place your hand behind your ear. We do that sometimes so as to hear better. David's saying, Lord, please put your hand behind your ear so you can hear me, that you can hear what I'm about to say. The Hebrew word for heed is an interesting word, haksibah. That word speaks of the pricking of the ear, like when the ears of a dog prick up and, and listen, suddenly stand up to listen. Interesting way to, to begin here. David is being respectful and reverential. He's not being disrespectful. This is him coming with a sense of urgency and earnestness and seriousness as he comes to God. This is certainly a cry for help. According to verse 2, this is a call for God to listen to the groans. The groans. Consider my groaning. We come with urgency and desperation. We don't come casually or routinely. We certainly don't come with some kind of religious formula. We come with utter genuineness and earnestness. That is, in times like that, there is an intense conviction about us. That's the first one, is this urgency. The second aspect to this approach by David is that it is persistent. Jim Boyce brought this out well, that it's persistent. Look, look at verse 3. In the morning, in the morning, twice, in the morning, in the morning I will order, I will order my prayer. That little phrase, I will order, that's a Hebrew verb that conveys a continuous ongoing action here, meaning that the idea is that each and every morning, when morning arrives, David's saying that he will come and then it'll be a matter of priority as an ordering of a structure and that he will pray to God. God will hear his voice. This is quite powerful. This is the exact same phrase it's used of Abraham at Mount Moriah as he laid the wood down in a certain order of which we know that he then tied his son, son Isaac to. There's a certain purposefulness in this. I, I took this as a great rebuke to my own life. Take it as a great rebuke to your own life. We must be ordered in our prayers. As we live and as we face trial and trouble, there must be a structuring. And it is day by day, that continuous ongoing action that I just spoke of, this ordering and structuring, that God would hear our prayers, that we would commune to God. I said to my girls this week, imagine you didn't speak to your sister and your mom didn't speak to your sister and your dad didn't speak to you. It wouldn't be very good at all. Everything would break down. Well, it's the same for you and I when we're not ensuring order 
and structuring of our day by day that God would hear our voice. David's showing that the morning is a good time to do that. Some of us aren't morning people. Some of us like to stay up in the night. Well, it's a little bit like breakfast. Whenever you eat, you break the fast. Well, whenever you get up, that's your morning. <laughs> whenever your day begins is what David's saying. Whenever your day begins, let God hear your voice. You know, Mark chapter 1 verse 35 tells us that Jesus rose early in the morning and went to pray. Some of you work shift work. You rise early in the morning, but it's 11 a.m. Well, our Lord went to pray, and David is saying the morning's a good time to do that. If you think back to Psalm 3 and verse 5, David prayed that it... And then he woke up and then he pressed on in the morning. Then in Psalm 4, David prayed in verse 8 that you would lie down in the evening in peace and prayed. And then here in Psalm 5, he prays about the morning. And so what we really have is God calling us to bookend our days in morning and evening, morning and evening with prayer. And then if you take the New Testament command to pray without ceasing, which, just so we know, doesn't mean to pray at all times unceasingly. It means to be prayerful and in prayer throughout the day. When you take all that into consideration, we're soon reminded and no doubt convicted that prayer must really be a major part of our lives. The kind of person that God uses is a praying person. A praying person endures the lament. A praying person lays hold of the confidence they have in God. What does that mean? That means they bring about glory to God in their lives. By living in obedience to Him, even through the trial or whatever the Lord may call us to. And Charles Spurgeon said, quote, Prayer should be the key of the day and the luck of the night. Devotion should be both the morning and the evening star to the Christian. I trust as you consider your own life like I do, these are convicting words. But we need to move from the conviction and say, in my heart of hearts, I want to be effective. In my career, I strive to be effective. In the sport that I try to do, I try to be effective. In everything that I do, I try to be effective. I want to be effective to you, O oh God, because your son shed his own blood for my soul. So there's a persistency here. A persistency to our prayers is what our Lord Jesus taught us in Scripture on more than one occasion. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 11, verse 10? Whoever seeks, finds, and whoever knocks to him, that door shall be open. Keep on knocking is the sense. Keep on seeking is the sense. 
from Jesus there, and he's talking about prayer. In Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus said that we must pray and not give up. Not give up. And so there's urgency and persistency. The third aspect that we see in these opening words of David's prayer is not only is there that sense of urgency and real persistence, there's also an eager expectation that God will act. Look at the very end of verse 3. He says, and I'll, then I'll eagerly watch. I will order my life around speaking to you. And then after I've prayed to you, he says there, and then I'll watch. Watch what? The grass grow? No. I, I will watch you answer my prayers. There is an expectation here. I'm expectant that I am one of your children. You are not a cruel, absent father, but you are an active involved, loving Father, and I will watch you answer my prayers. We've got to be expectant in our prayers. Sometimes we watch the Charismatics and the Pentecostals, some of them anyway, and they just demand of God things. And we swing the pendulum so far that we're even afraid to pray in faith and pray in, with this expectant, expectancy. No, no, don't, don't, don't allow one abuse to swing the pendulum so far that we miss what God calls us to. As David prayed in the midst of trouble and tribulation, he waited in expectation that God will, in his timing, in accordance with his perfect will, act on David's behalf. If we come to God in prayer, asking him to hear our cry for help, we have to be both confident that he not only hears our prayer, inclining his ears to them, what a privilege that is, but also that he answers our prayers, answering in line with his will to them. James chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says, One must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for that person ought not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. My Father is good. He's always good. We can take great comfort in the fact that God hears our cry. And we can also take comfort in the fact that there's not some magic formula of words that open up his ear. And unlock his heart. After all, David says, consider my groaning. Hear my groaning. Sometimes we cannot even utter the right words, but God sees and he knows the groanings of our heart. He knows and he answers. That's how David comes to God. That's how David comes to God, wanting to be useful to God. Wanting to be the kind of person that God uses. There's an urgency, there's a persistence, and there's an expectancy. After all, what's amazing about being a Christian is that our God is not some distant deity that we have to continually appease. No, no, He's our heavenly Father. And we ought not hesitate nor doubt. For after all, did He not send us His own Son, the Lord Jesus, to unite us to himself, to 
die for our sins to adopt us as his children. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but deliver him, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let that warm your heart. And so we come with a cry for help, trusting the goodness of our God. David is exemplifying here a high view of God. The height of your view of God directly correlates to the depth of your knowledge of God. You cannot worship that which you do not know. David is exemplifying a high view of God in the way in which he comes to God. He has a high and transcendent view. That's the first part of the prayer. The second part, the next part of David's prayer during these troubled and turbulent times is what we could call, number two, a majestic holiness in verses 4 and 6. After opening that way, look at verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. That can only be said of God in the person of Christ. As David considers Absalom and those tens of thousands that are out to get him, he thinks of wickedness, and rightly so. For they're indeed wicked. As you and I consider much that goes on out in the world, we ought think of wickedness. Because it is wicked. To be wicked is to be lawless, and Absalom and his men were indeed against the law of God and rebellious to God in their, in their conduct. You and I live in nations with rebellious, lawless leaders. We live amongst the people who are rebellious and lawless to God and to the law of God. It's wickedness. David knows full well, you and I know full well, that while Absalom may be wicked and our world may be wicked, God is not. He's not. Not only is he not wicked, he will not allow for lawless disobedience to his law. He won't allow that to be something that he shines his face upon. The reason is because God is perfectly holy. Evil certainly dwells inside the human heart, particularly and primarily the unregenerate human heart, the unbelieving human heart. And David is exalting God's majestic holiness, the lack of evil. By confessing that there is no evil in God, literally in the Hebrew, it says evil does not sojourn, does not travel along with God. In verses 4 to 6, we see that David has such an exalted view of God and how it is that by drawing near to God in prayer, it even elevates our view of God higher. As we see more of God, as we dwell upon more of God, we see just how holy He is. 
and we see our, how unholy the world is. If the world and its ways is not unholy to you, then you can bet your bottom dollar that your view of God is not as transcendent, as high as it ought to be. When we come to God in prayer like this, and we're moved after we've made our cries, we've moved to be exposed to His holiness anew and afresh, we begin to grasp the severity of unbelief and how the unbelieving are not on the receiving end of some kind of passive and neutral experience from God. Look at the language of verse 5. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. It says, You destroy them. You hate them. You abhor them. The unbelieving, the wicked, are, are liars. They're deceitful. The end of verse 6. They are arrogant. They are bloodthirsty. What's going on here? David, as he comes to God in prayer, morning by morning, evening by evening, as he comes and acknowledges the holiness of God, he has an ever-increasing awareness of the sinfulness of sin. As we reflect upon the holiness of God, the God who has no evil dwelling within him, the same will be said of us. The bottom line is this, is that when we increase our communion with God by reading His Word and by Him hearing our voice as we order our days, wanting to be effective, wanting to be used by God with prayers to Him, we will become increasingly in awe of His holiness and the world which sometimes we are too comfortable in will become to us more and more unholy that we will then be moved to fulfill the command of Romans chapter 1 sorry Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 to not be conformed to this world but live for the perfect holy will of a perfect and holy God make no mistake here the direct result of David's urgent and persistent and expectant prayer that we saw in the opening three verses is the innate awareness of both the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin and how David must be separate from sin so as to live as the kind of person that God uses. Our God is holy. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You, O God, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. You and I, you and I, need this kind of reality check in our lives. Hey. We do. We need this kind of reality check in our lives. I want to be a good teacher. I want to be a good businessman. I want to be a good real estate agent. I want to be a good builder. I want to be whatever it is I want to be. I want to be good. Why? 
I want to be good at it. I want to excel. Well, far above all that is I want to be a good and faithful believer, follower of the Lord Jesus. I've got to come with urgent, desperate prayers that God would hear me when I say, I want to be a good and faithful servant. I want to bring you glory. This world is unholy. But you are holy. One man said of this kind of prayer, quote, prayers of this kind may have more value than our present age is inclined to admit. They are surely born out of deep sense of the sinfulness of sin and out of the conviction that the only one who can stem the tide of sin is the Almighty. End quote. You know, rightly so, we talk a lot about sin as Christians. Some preachers don't because they're scared, well, they're, they think it'll scare people away. But we do talk a lot about sin as Christians. We talk a lot about the forgiveness of sin found in the Lord Jesus. We talk about the danger of sin to our children. But when we talk about sin, it can come across to the non-Christians sometimes that we're better than they. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, historically, the church has always been called with the prophetic call of criticism to speak out against what goes on in the world and say, that is not right. Do we do it as sanctimonious, arrogant people? No, 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 we don't do it like that. But when we talk about sin all the time, unbelievers, the unbelieving world can think that we're better than them. And we think that they're, we're better than them. They're wrong in that assessment. And our third heading this morning shows us why. While also revealing to us about when we're seeking God in prayer, we begin to live as God would have us live. You could call the third heading, heading now a worthy honor in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. But as for me, I will enter your house. What did I miss? What did I miss? By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. Big difference. I want you to notice the progress. Come to God. See His holiness. Understand the sinfulness of sin. Enter God's house. Enter God's house. Mankind only ever consecrates themselves, that is, becomes committed to God when mankind sees their great need for God, comes to Him for help, sees God's holiness, sees sin for the disaster that it is, and then comes to God's house finding acceptance. Acceptance because they're good? No, no, no. We come to God's house 
because of nothing in and of ourselves, but solely because of God's abundant loving kindness. Now think about this. Verse 4 says, No evil dwells with you. And when you and I, sinners, come together into the house of God, how does God accept us if no evil dwells with Him? Well, the answer to that is His covenant. His covenant. For the nation of Israel, under the old covenant, God made a covenant with them. He set them apart, gave them ceremonial, diet, dietary laws that they would keep them and be a distinct people set apart for Him. He protected them. For us, ham-eating Gentiles from all over the world God placed us in the new covenant. God made a covenant to do a work of regeneration in our hearts. What is regeneration? It's the working of the life of God in the very dead heart of a person. And then and planting that life of God inside that person's heart. The very life of Christ. What is the life of Christ for the believer? It is the spirit taking all the purchased blessings and saving benefits that Jesus Christ merited for us in his living and in his dying and then clothing us with them giving us both the newness of life and the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ we were once dead we're made alive we once possessed zero righteousness we are now clothed with perfect righteousness no one else in this world say that no was it because anything that I did or you did no and so when we gather together in God's house we gather in God's eyes not as sinners who commit sin even though we still sin ourselves but we gather as those who are in covenant with God for he has placed us into covenant with him that is all of Christ and not of ourselves Christ is unendingly beautiful and glorious in the father's eyes therefore you and I having been united by a simple trust in Jesus we are glorious and beautiful in the Father's eye. All of Christ and not of ourselves. No wonder the end of verse 7 says, look there, at your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. Mark this down. Christianity is not, I'm a good person, I've done good things, therefore I come and worship God. No, Christianity is, I am not good, I have done many a bad thing, and I come not on the basis of anything I have done, I come into the very presence of a thrice holy God and bow in reverence to Him and find acceptance in Him on nothing other than Jesus Christ and His life and death on my behalf. David's not asking God to accept him on the basis of his own righteousness, but on the righteousness of another. And I love, and I had no idea Sam was going to read Philippians 3, but it explains it all so beautifully. 
It's not a righteousness that comes from the law, that is, the keeping of the law. It is the righteousness of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we lay hold of by faith. That's what mercy is. That's what mercy is. Why? We didn't deserve what we have. Therefore, why would we not live in light of what we have? With a marked desire to want to be the kind of person that God uses. We must call to mind here the great parable that our Lord Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 18. You know it well. Jesus speaks of a Pharisee. The Pharisee enters God's house to pray. He goes into God's house and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, crooks, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. What did Jesus say? He said, there's a tax collector standing over there some distance away who was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven and was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Jesus say of those two people? He said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other one for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We humble ourselves in prayer. Is there a more humble posture than hear my cry, O Lord? Help me, God. And so we're not accepted by our own goodness, but on the goodness and faithfulness of God to the covenant that He's placed us in an eternal covenant of His beloved Son purchased with the shed blood of the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder David says what he does in verse 8, O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness. Not mine, yours, your righteousness. Because of my foes. Now, you may have foes that are coming against you and you can lay hold of that. You may not have any foes at the moment. You might have them in the future. But regardless, you and I come into the house of God and we ask of our very life, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Look what he says at the end of verse 8. Make your way straight before me. Make your way straight. As people redeemed, we come and worship in God's house. We're accepted only by God's grace and therefore we respond by giving God honor and praise for He alone is worthy of our honor and our praise. And when we come, we know that we're needy. And so when we come into the house of worship looking for God by His righteousness to make our path straight, that's what we do. You sinned yesterday. Friday as well and Thursday, and Wednesday, and Tuesday, and Monday, and so did I. That's like getting a shoulder injury, getting a knee injury, getting an ankle injury, a neck injury, spiritually, 
And then we come into the house of God. And we're realigned. You know it as well as I do. After coming to the house of God for worship, after partaking of the Lord's table, after witnessing or being involved in a baptism, after sitting under the preaching of the word of God, after singing, after praying, after hearing the word of God read, we are realigned in our path. We want to forsake sin. We want to live more and more for God. But oh, how our sin is ever before us. And oh, how we still wander into sin. And oh, how sin catches us too easily. You know that. Even when your heart's... ah. Therefore, oh, how we need to come to the house of God. There is a direct correlation between people who make life in the church and worship on the Lord's Day a peripheral thing and those who make it a priority to come and worship the Lord on the Lord's Day and live their life in the context of the church. There is a a direct correlation between the lives of those, those two types of people. I've seen it year after year, firsthand. One is depleted and in a spiritual drought. One is depleted and in a spiritual drought, but they come and get water. They drink of the living water of Christ. They receive the living water of the Word, and they, they, they are replenished, and then they move on. Move on to what? The next thing that the Lord calls them to, and that thing that the Lord's called them to, because they, they are being used of God. One dries up, one grows. And so what happens when we order our days in prayer? When we make prayer actually a matter of faith and practice in our life, well, we see God in we see God as holy in deeper ways. We see sin for what it truly is and Grace is grasped afresh. There's a resolution to come to God's house. There's an ordering of not only our prayers, but our worship. And then our paths are made straight. doesn't mean they're made easy, but they're made straight. We also have a proper perspective of the unbelieving world that we live in. We see its wickedness. We want nothing to do with its wickedness. Because look at verse 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, do not love the world. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, God loved the world. What do you do with that? Well, God has a benevolent love for the world that He created and all the people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religion, they're created in His image and He has a benevolent love for them. The same God who has a benevolent love for the world says to those He has a very special love upon, His children, He says, do not love the world. Do not love the wicked system, anti-God, satanic, philosophical systems of the world 
Sometimes you and I, when we're not praying, grasping God's holiness, seeing the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and understanding just how wicked this world is, is we're just too comfortable in a wicked world. No, no, you want to be the type of person that God uses? There has to be clear distinctions. We live in a wicked world, but we must not be stained or conformed into a wicked world. We must stand out regardless the cost. After all, verses 9 and 10, fourth heading, they show us a very wicked haughtiness. We could call it a wicked haughtiness. Verses 9 and 10, there's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. What does that sound like? Someone say Romans chapter 3, because that's what it is. Romans chapter 3. Everything about them is a destruction. Their throat is an open grave. So what comes out of their mouth is stemming from an open grave. Death is inside an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And to accomplish their purposes, they speak great words of flattery. And if you're not careful, if you're not what I just described before, understanding how wicked this world is, you'll just be drawn along by their flattery and their deception. David's saying his enemies are doing all these things. And then he says in verse 10, Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out. Why? For they are rebellious against you. Romans chapter 12 tells us to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. Sometimes we yawn at what is evil and try and cling to what is good. No. Notice the kind of person that God uses here. One who wants to vindicate God's holy name. You know, part of us, we, we want people to come to faith. Yeah, we do. We certainly want people to come to faith. But we also want on that final day, did not the judge of all the earth do right? When he took the wicked and judged them for their utter rebelliousness against God and the people of God. This is the progression here. David's speaking pretty negatively. No, we can't speak like that. That's too discouraging. No, no, we just need to hear smooth, flattery things. No, no, this is the kind of person that God uses in, in desperate need of God, innately aware of God's holiness, innately aware of the sinfulness of sin, understands the unholiness of the world longs for God to judge the unrighteous in the world and then look at how it all ends in verses 11 and 12 it ends with what we can call final heading a joyful hallelujah we never want to remain in the, in the fact that the world is messed up. If, if our Christian life is just lived in the light of the fact that the world is just messed up, then we're messed up. Why are we messed up? Because we miss. We miss out on the true perspective we must have in a wicked world with a holy God in, with the exceeding sinfulness of sin as a reality in our life. 
This is what must be our reality. Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Why glad? Let them ever sing for joy. Why sing for joy? Because, look at the end of verse 12. You surround him with favor. As as a shield. That's why. It's quite remarkable. Truly remarkable. That you and I deserve the judgment that he speaks of in verse 10. Hold them guilty. You and I just deserve to be guilty. But we're shown favor. Not only are we shown favor, we are protected as with a shield. David hearkening back to his war time experience. He knew exactly what a shield did, protected from arrows and spears. Let them ever sing for joy and may you shelter them as those who love your name. The reality for you and I is that we need a reality check. And the reality check is that we must order our days that God would hear our voice. And then in hearing our voice, as we commune with Him in the Word and through prayer, He would become remarkably, majestically holy to us. That when we compare Him to all else, even ourselves, He is perfectly holy. And that in the fullest sense, we'd be glad because we've been spared from those who are guilty and those who will receive His judgment. You might be here this morning in need of being spared from His judgment. And I would say to you that it is the righteous person as it says in verse 12, that God blesses. It's the righteous person that God surrounds as with a shield. And you have no righteousness of your own. You need someone else's. And that righteousness is provided for you in the perfect person of Jesus Christ. And so believe on the Lord Jesus. Trust in Him today. And you can join a great family, even a great army, that has a shield about us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, Father, you'd take it. And, and really, Lord, help us not to forget this message today. Help us not to forget what we felt today by your spirit would you take this and plant in us a deep desire to order our days that in the morning and in the evening and throughout the day you, you'll hear our voice 
that we'd be overwhelmed by your abundant loving kindness to us. That we'd be moved on greater levels to enter your house of worship. To be led by your righteousness. That you'd make our way straight. Father, help us to have no trust in a world that has no reliability in what they say. In many ways, Lord, those who come against the church of Jesus Christ, would you hold them guilty, O God? Would by their own devices against the church of Jesus Christ, would you let them fall? For they are rebellious against you. (laughs) But for us, O Lord, help us to, to be glad. To be glad and ever sing for joy in our heart of hearts. That you shelter us, that you love us, that you bless us, and that you surround us. That alone lifts our hearts. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, wherever you are, it's a beautiful day. And so enjoy some fellowship uh, outside and just enjoy time wherever you are.